chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1. It's right before Micah, and I believe it's in between Obadiah and, and Micah, towards the end of the uh, New Testament. And a little book hidden in there, four little chapters, but an amazing book. Tonight's title is God Calls, Jonah Runs. God Calls and Jonah Runs. He was a reluctant missionary, if you will. This little book of Jonah, what is it all about? Is it a story about a whale? Is it the story about a little man and a big fish? A story about a great city, a disobedient prophet, a reluctant missionary? The book of Jonah has been described as a parable, basically a fairy tale. A great children's story, one of the favorites that, you know, we teach our children when they're little. Uh, This famous story about a great fish is often mistakenly thought of as a whale. And it's led many to think about the book as nothing more than a biblical fish story. And it's a mistake that's based partly on the difficulty some readers have in accepting that this was a miraculous thing that God did. They have trouble accepting that this is the miraculous nature of the storyline in the book of Jonah. Not believing that, that these events and actions really took place. Or they're not historical in nature. That, in other words, that these things didn't really happen. For sure, the storyline about a man and a great fish is unusual. It does sound like just a, a, a kid's fairy tale. But it's presented in Scripture as normal history. Normal history. Furthermore, Jesus used the story of Jonah as an analogy of his own future death and resurrection in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. And Jesus' analogy depends on on, on recognizing two historical realities. Two historical truths. One, the historical experience of Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And secondly, the historical experience of the repentance of the people of Nineveh based on the preaching of Jonah, Luke eleven twenty nine and 32. And for sure the phrase that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 4, the sign of the prophet Jonah must have been a phrase Jesus used often in his teaching because it's found more uh, it's found on, on, on more than one occasion in Matthew's gospel in the record of Jesus's ministry. So any view of the book of Jonah that doesn't believe that it describes true historical events, they have to explain away the clear words of Jesus to mean something else. This is a story, and this is what you should just write next to the title of Jonah in your Bible. This is a story about God to remind you. It's a story about God. God is mentioned more than 30 times in these four short chapters in the book of Jonah. If you took God out of the book of Jonah, the story wouldn't make any sense. The book of Jonah is about the will of God and how we respond to the will of God. It's all about the love of God and how we're to share the story of the love of God with others. Today, sin runs totally unrestrained in society. It is a free-for-all. It's whatever you want to do, do it. 
It's not a viral pandemic. It is an immoral pandemic. Every day, headlines present the clear truth to that. To that fact. With child abuse, terrorism, crime, abortion on demand, violence, murder, corruption, hatred, the racial divide, sexual perversion, the list could go on. Reading and hearing about these terrible calamities and maybe even experiencing them, we start to understand the need for God to bring His judgment. And I know that personally, man, there are times, you know, more often than not, God, bring vengeance on these people by any means, however you want to do it, on those that are committing the atrocities in our nation. And I hear people say, Amen. It is too late for change to come. We're too far gone. But what if God told you to take his word, the gospel, to the worst of the worst? What would you do? Jonah was given that assignment. Assyria was a great but evil empire. And Assyria was Israel's most dreaded enemy. The Assyrians flaunted their power before God and the world through many of the barbaric acts of heartless cruelty. And so when Jonah heard God tell him to go to Assyria and call the people to repentance, he ran the opposite way. He said, I'm not going there. The book of Jonah tells the story of this prophet running away and how God stopped him and turned him around. But it's a lot lot more than a story about a man and a great fish. Jonah's story is an overwhelming example of God's mercy and grace. Nobody deserved God's favor less than the people of Nineveh, which which was Assyria's capital. And Jonah knew this. But Jonah also knew that God would forgive these people and God would bless them if they would turn from their sin and worship him. And uh, Jonah also knew the power of God's word, the power of God's message, that even through his weak preaching, they would respond to God's word and they would be spared God's judgment. Because you see, it's not the preacher, but it's what he's preaching. If it's God's word. But Jonah hated the Assyrians and he wanted vengeance, not mercy for them. So he ran the other way when God said, hey, I have a message for you to take to Nineveh. And eventually Jonah obeyed and he preached in the streets of Nineveh and the people repented and they were delivered from judgment. Then Jonah, after God did what he said he would do, then Jonah got on the pity pot and he complained to God in chapter four, verse two. And you see, God, I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and your abundant and loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And in the end, God confronted Jonah about his selfish values. He confronted Jonah about his lack of compassion. And he said in chapter four, verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, Jonah? That great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock, that is not to mention all their animals. So as we study Jonah, see the full picture of God's love and compassion and realize that nobody, there's not one human being that is beyond redemption. There's not one person, no matter what they've done, 
that, is, that, that, that God will not spare, that God will not save if they turn to him and if they repent of their sins. Let's begin now with verse 1. By the way, we're just going to cover verse 1 and 2 tonight. Let's look at verse 1, Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now these words establish the fact of where the source of the message to Jonah came from. Jonah wasn't hearing strange voices. Somebody didn't come to give Jonah this message. God was the source of the message. It came from God to Jonah. The source of Jonah's assignment was God's word. God's word will tell all men their duty, what they're called to do, what they're, what, they were, what they're here to do. The word of God is the basic source of our God-given duty because as the book of Jonah shows us, it's the prerequisite for finding out what our duty is. A lot of people say, hey, I don't know what my purpose is here on earth. I don't know why I was born, what my purpose is for being here. Read the word of God and God will speak to you. Before Jonah could know that his God-given duty was to go to Nineveh, God's word had to come to Jonah first. And we also must first know God's word before we can learn what our duty is. But if we don't know God's word, we're going to walk in ignorance. We're going to walk in darkness when it comes to the most important responsibilities in life. This world, this society can't tell us what we're supposed to do. It can't tell us what our duty is because, you see, they don't take into consideration the word of God. This world, for the most part, does not, you know, consider God's word. The will of God, which is what our duty is all about, is never apart from God's word. The psalmist said in Psalm 143, verse 10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Psalmist said in uh, in chapter 40, verse 8, from the New Living Translation, I take joy in doing your will, my God, because your instructions are written on my heart. Notice that, how God's will and the word of God were in the man's heart. I take joy in doing your will because your word is written on my heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we want to know what God wants us to do, and if we want to know our calling, we first have to know God's word. Ignorance of God's word is ignorance of the duty that matters the most in life. Keep God's word from people, and you keep people from the will of God. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. That's Satan's will, to keep you from his word. Because if he can keep you from his word, he's disarmed you from the most important weapon you have against him. That's why Satan does everything in his power to keep you busy, to keep you from the word of God. Because again, it's your greatest weapon against the devil. Paul said, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. To put on the armor of God. And then he said, take up the sword of the spirit. That's your offensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon, which is the word of God. And that's why, why, why Satan came against Eve and tried to disarm her by saying, you can't really believe what God said. 
Did, did God really say that? He was creating doubt in her mind, and, and eventually she, she fell for it. And so when he, you take away the word of God, you're totally disarmed. God is above all others. He's the creator of man. So duty that comes from his word has top priority. So Jonah's duty must have top priority in his life. And Jonah, as well as us, make, have to make everything a lesser priority to God's word if we're going to do our God-appointed duty. But as we already know, God's word didn't have priority in Jonah's life. And when it didn't, Jonah failed big time. When it came to carrying out his God-given assignment, and as a result, he generally made a mess of things. And that's what happens when we don't have God's word in our life. When we don't have his direction, we mess up big time. If you want to do the will of God, you have to give the word of God top priority in your life. Usually, so, uh, the social lifestyles, today modern day fashions natural thinking fleshly desires they often demand and take first place in my life you know it's me first that's the natural inclination it's na- it's it's nature it's me first it's all about me but god's word has to be honored above everything else if the will of god is going to be done there's no better source than god's word And one of the things that make God's words the best source of duty is that it's always practical. God's word is very, very practical. God's word never tells us to do anything stupid. It never tells us to do anything unreasonable. God's word to Jonah was practical. It was fitting and Nineveh needed to hear God's word. Critics of God's word, they argue, hey, the Bible's obsolete. You know, it's out of touch with today's world, with today's societies, with today's needs. And so because, because they think it's, it's, it's obsolete, it, it doesn't have much value in this world. It doesn't, take, it doesn't have much of a place or application to today's world or today's time. Far from the truth. Far from the truth. God's word can be depended on to know what's needed for every person in every situation at all times, in every age. Any duty that the word prescribes will always be appropriate for the occasion. The word is never out of touch. And it's always practical for life's situations. God's word is a source of blessing. And this is especially obvious in the case of Nineveh. God's word came to Nineveh. Why did it come to Nineveh? Because it came to Jonah. Man, count it a great blessing to know the will of God and count it a terrible curse to not know the will of God. Giving man the word of God is, is, is God's greatest blessing to man. But to take away the word of God is one of the worst judgments that God can bring on man. Amos, in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, warned his people about the danger when he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Can you imagine how horrible that would be to not have the word of God? 
Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 74, 9, We no longer see your miraculous signs, and all the prophets are gone, and no one can tell us when it will end. In times of crisis, people turn to the Lord. They turn to the Lord for some word of guidance or encouragement. For, but for Israel here, in this case, Amos was saying no word was going to come. And they said, we no longer see your miraculous signs. The prophets are gone. We don't, we don't hear anything. What a tragedy to see so many churches today. I mean, on this block, you have three of them. Well, four when you go across the street. Four of them within walking distance. What a tragedy to have plenty of churches, plenty of religion, but no Jesus. No word of God. And I'm not saying about these other churches, but I'm saying, again, we have so many churches, but not, not all of them, and a lot of them aren't teaching the word of God. They don't have the word of God. That means no light in the darkness. No nourishment for our soul. No direction in our life for making decisions. No protection from the lies of the enemy. And the people would stagger around like drunks from place to place. Amos was talking about when again there would be no no word in the land. They would stagger around like drunks from place to place, always hoping to find food and find drink for their bodies and spiritual nourishment for their souls. But God takes away the word of God when people will not honor it. This is happening in our churches today. Remember what Jesus said? You know, if, if I'm not there, I'm going to remove the lampstand. The lampstand brought light. If Jesus is not there, it's going to be nothing but darkness. And it's happening in our churches today. Many of them are accepting today's evils. They're accepting what the people want. They're accepting evil as good and today's good as evil. God had a job to be done by Jonah. The Ninevites needed to be warned about their sin. So God chooses Jonah and gives him the job of warning the people. Now Jonah was a prophet, even though the book of Jonah never says he was. Or, or says that he is. But in, it does in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And it's the only Old Testament reference where Jonah is mentioned. Listen to 2 Kings 14, 25. It says, He, speaking of Jonah, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Ham, uh, Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. But did you notice it says that God spoke through his servant, Jonah, the prophet. Notice the importance of the, of the words there. First, he was called a servant. You see, before you can become a prophet or whatever else God calls you to be, you first have to be a servant. Because if you're not willing to be a servant, you won't be a true prophet. Because you see, servant speaks of, of sacrifice. 
A servant speaks of work and humility. Prophet speaks of a position, privilege, and status. A lot of people in church, they want to be prophets first, but they don't want to be servants. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 16, many are called for service, but few are chosen. Why? They don't want to be servants. God calls many people to serve, but few are chosen because only a few show the willingness to be a servant. The assignment that God gave Jonah gave him a wonderful chance to preach to thousands and to win them to the Lord Jesus, but he almost missed that opportunity. And and you know what? And sometimes, as you've experienced in serving the Lord, sometimes the duty that God gives us, it doesn't look all that exciting. And many times it usually looks boring. And many times it's inconvenient. Of all the times I have to serve tonight. Many times it's it's not that pleasant. But don't ignore that. Don't, Don't ignore that duty because in that duty is where opportunity comes. Are we willing to serve in in the most difficult times, the most difficult places, the most unpleasant things? Are we willing to serve him when those opportunities come? And many times people complain about, oh, and I don't have the the opportunities to serve the Lord. You know, or I don't have opportunities in life. Your duty may not seem to be as special as Jonah's was. Like going to Nineveh. It might be what seems to be an unthinkable assignment instead. But again, don't belittle, don't ignore the amount of opportunities that might be involved in a small but yet not so exciting work. And I think of a great illustration in 1 Samuel chapter 9. I think of the anointing of Saul, how it came about. I would encourage you to read 1 Samuel 9 slowly and and just watch how God, the events unfolded for, 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 for Saul in some, what I would think would be a horrible assignment. Saul's father, Kish, lost some donkeys. So what does Saul's father do? He calls Saul. He says, hey, Saul. He says, I want you to take one of our servants and I want you to go look for the donkeys. Can you imagine having to go look for some dumb donkeys? I could be taking it like me. I said, oh, man, I don't want to go looking for a bunch of donkeys. It says that Saul and the servant went through the mountains of Ephraim, through the land of Shalisha, but couldn't find them. It says they passed through the land of Shalim. They weren't there. They passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they didn't find them there. Then they went to the land of Zuf. They weren't all over the place. They were gone for a while looking for these donkeys. And then Saul said to his servant, you know what? Let's go home. My father's probably more worried about us now than he is the donkeys. But then the servant said, hey, wait a minute. So there's a man of God in this city. And he's an honorable man. Everything he says comes to pass. Why don't we go see him? Maybe he can show us the way that we should go. 
So Saul says, this is his story. hey, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was supposed to be. And as they went up the hill, again, notice the sequence of events that are taking place. These aren't coincidences. This isn't a stroke of good luck. God is setting everything in place for Saul to, um, to, to eventually be anointed the king of Israel. How did it start out? Looking, by some dumb, looking for some donkeys. Think about it. Don't take the little tasks that look so menial to think, what, what, what kind of outcome is this going to have? It says, as they went up to the hill, looking for, they went up the hill to the city, looking for this man that's supposed to be there. They met some young women drawing water. They said to the young women, uh, is the seer here? Speaking of Samuel, the prophet. They said, why, yes, he is. Look, he's right there ahead of you. What a coincidence. We just happened to go to the city. We happened to walk up the hill. And there's the guy that we're looking for. And they said, hurry up, because this is the day that he comes to the city. Well, again, another coincidence. This is the day he happened to come to the city for a sacrifice. They said, as soon as you come into the city, you'll find him there before he goes up to the high place to eat. So they went up to the city, and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel. What a coincidence. And they were coming toward him on his way up to where he was going. He could have walked the other way. Nope. They were walking towards Saul and his servant. And then the Lord told Samuel the day before, hey, there's this guy coming to town. Tomorrow about this time, he says, I will send you a man. Notice, God said, I will send you a man. All of these things were done by the Lord. He arranged all of these things. All starting out by going and looking for some donkeys. He said, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And it goes on to say, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, Samuel. That's the guy. That's the man I told you about. This is the one who shall reign over my people. What a beautiful story. Again, started out by looking for some donkeys. Running into all these people that God had placed in in order for for Saul to come to that place where God's going to use them in a mighty way or wants to use them in a mighty way. You see, the point is, do your duty well, whatever it might be. Again, it could be looking for donkeys. But when God is in it, know that God isn't using you in a useless way. God has a purpose for everything that he does. Do your duty well because you, you, the better you do your duty, the greater your opportunities will, build, will be. You know, God wants to give us responsibilities, but he wants to see if we're going to take the little things that he gives us and do them well. He says, I'll make you responsible over the big things if you're responsible for the little things that I give you in life. Because if you're not going to do the little things well, I really doubt that you're going to do the big things well. Now, let's break down God's command here in verses 1 and 2. First of all, remember that our duty is God's command. Jonah's duty was clearly stated by God. 
Notice again in verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their, for their wickedness has come up before me. It didn't take a Bible scholar to understand the command that Jonah was given. To see that it was real. Thank God this is the way that it's given, Clearly. You see, it's only sin that makes it seem unclear or too difficult to figure out. The first word in the command to Jonah in their verse 2 was what? Arise. Arise. This was an exciting call to action. All right. Get ready, Jonah. God was ready to warn Nineveh. So he notifies Jonah in a way that said, come on, arise. Let's get moving. Because you don't win wars by sitting you don't win wars by sitting in one place. There comes a time when we have to charge the enemy. There was a fierce spiritual battle going on in Jonah's day, just like there is today, and God wanted his servant to charge into Nineveh and make an attack against that evil that was going on there. He says in verse two notes, Arise, go to Nineveh. Let's get moving, Jonah. Nineveh is about a five hundred to six hundred mile walk from there. He had to hoof it all the way to Nineveh. This would take some time. It would be hard. It would even be boring. But again, part of our walk with God has its long, boring, and lonely hours of preparation that's necessary in order to carry out our duty. And once Jonah gets to Nineveh, then the excitement's going to start. But first, he has to make the long, boring walk. Before he gets there. You see what all of this teaches us. Is that duty has its glory. And its excitement. But first there's the long necessary walk. Preachers have to spend time in prayer. And Bible study. If they're going to reach their Nineveh. Musicians and singers. They have to spend their hours of practice. Before they can reach their Nineveh. Every day in life there's a walk. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, walk walk symbolizes movement. It symbolizes moving forward. The The place of duty that Jonah was assigned was to go to Nineveh. This is where God sent him to preach. You know, it's just like being in the military. You know, you spend months preparing for battle or for wherever you're going to go to serve that duty. Once you've been trained, then you receive your orders to go wherever it is you're going to serve. God called Nineveh a great city. And it was a great city in a lot of ways. It was great in size. It covered a big area. Archaeologists say that it was about 350 square miles. Nineveh had a large large population. Chapter 4, verse 11 says, Nineveh had more than 120,000 persons who could not discern between their right hand and their left hand. Now, the words that say you who could not uh, tell their right hand from their left hand, this may refer to young children, in which case the population of Nineveh and its surroundings may have been, as some commentators say, 600,000. Other commentators suggest that 120, 000, these 120,000 were adults who were as undisciplined or undiscerning as children. Therefore, it's picturing their spiritual and moral condition without God. We know God for sure has a special concern for children. 
Mark 10, 13 through 16. It says, Then they brought little children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. And it says, And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. But whether they were children or adults, these 120,000, the Assyrians, all needed to, know the, needed to know the Lord. We can compare Nineveh to our nation today, but on a, on a much larger scale. The people need to be warned of the impending judgment that God is going to bring on the ungodly. God said to Jonah, when you get to Nineveh, He said to Jonah, cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Notice their wickedness. This refers to Nineveh's pride, their greed, their brutality, and their adultery. Therefore, God told Jonah, cry out against it. In other words, Jonah, wage war against this evil going on in Nineveh. It's the same idea the prophet Isaiah was told uh, to do in regarding his people. In Isaiah 58.1, it says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression. Tell my people their sin. It would be wonderful if Nineveh's response to God's message was the same for every city. But we know that it's not. To cry out against sin, it takes a lot of spiritual energy that a lot of people don't have. A lot of people can see a desperate situation. They can look around and, and, and you know, like, like today, we can see the, 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 the horrible things taking place in our nation and, and see a few concerning words like, oh, man, that, that's not right. You know, there's something wrong. But not do anything about it. It takes crying out against evil. Sin will never be opposed victoriously until we really get upset about it. That is upset enough to take a stand against the things happening in our world today. To to, to cry out strongly against those things. To cry out convincingly, passionately, and uncompromisingly and take action. And we have a chance to hopefully turn things around, even with this election on Tuesday. And if we don't, we could even, it could be even more devastating to us. Let me read this. I read in, in the article in the news the other night. This is just one of the things that we see taking place. It says, an elite school in Washington, D.C. announced to preschoolers, preschoolers, that a male teacher is about to give birth. The teacher is transgender. The the school called the pregnancy unusual. The River School sent a letter to parents alerting them that the male teacher's belly was already growing. For kids who may have associations, uh, associations with pregnancy and a certain gender, that is only girls and moms, can have babies, Tristan uses the language of some boys... Some boys have bodies that can have babies. And I have that kind of body that can have a baby. Isn't that cool? How many heard that? 
Not one person heard that? Okay, my point is, man, if we're not staying up on things, we don't understand why we have a, a, a responsibility to vote on these things. And then when they take place and we hear about what's happening to our kids and our grandkids and these preschoolers, we go, what in the world is going on? People aren't paying attention. That's just one of the things that I read almost every day taking place in the schools. Grooming our children. Feeding them this nonsense. Even God said in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 6, Now let me ask you a question. Do men give birth to babies? God's even, and say, hey, no. The inference is no, they don't. Joseph Parker said, what is your call in life? To go wherever wickedness is and cry out against it. Every child of God is to be a protesting prophet. Jesus vigorously opposed evil wherever he went. Remember one time he took a whip in the temple against the sin in the temple? That definitely upset things, literally as well. Because he turned over some tables in the process. To cry out against evil is still the command from God today. And any other attitudes towards sin is compromise, spiritual sickness, and unfaithfulness. The war against sin will never do well if we're not willing to cry out forcefully against it or to do whatever we can to fight it. Edmund Burke said this, All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. God does a lot to encourage us to do our duty. God gave Jonah a couple of very good reasons to support the duty that God assigned to him. He said, Jonah, I want you to do this because I called you to do this. And secondly, he says, I want you to do this because of their great wickedness. Wickedness is how God describes Nineveh's character and all that was taking place in Nineveh. Bible history and secular history gives a lot of evidence showing that Nineveh was a very wicked city. There's probably not a better description of Nineveh's evils than what the prophet Nahum said in the book of Nahum. It was all about Nineveh. Even though it was written sometime after Jonah, secular records have confirmed that the description that Nahum gave about Nineveh will also describe Nineveh in, Joseph, uh, in Jonah's day very accurately as well. The sins of Nineveh in Nahum's time were simply the resumed sins that were so common when Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Listen to what Nahum says about Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 in the New Living Translation. What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses, hooves, pound, and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and the glittering spears as the charioteers charge past. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. Morally, Nineveh lived in a cesspool of depravity. Spiritually, Nineveh was given over to witchcraft, which always breeds 
cruel practices. Militarily, Nineveh was very barbaric in the way they treated their enemies. In describing the barbaric military character of the Assyrian, J. Sidlow Baxter quotes Professor Sace, who said, The barbarities which followed the capture of a town would be almost incredible were they not the subject of boast in the inscriptions which record them. Pyramids of human heads marked the path of the conqueror. Boys and girls were burnt alive or reserved for a worse fate. Men were impaled, they were flayed alive or skinned alive, they were blinded or deprived of hands and feet or ears and noses. Nineveh's wickedness was definitely great. So much so that when Jonah finally got to Nineveh, the the city had only four days before God would destroy them if they didn't repent. Jonah's duty was to cry out against it. And and Jonah's duty was greatly justified and supported by Nineveh's character. And the character of our land today calls for nothing less. We see the beastly barbarities of abortion today. Especially with the Prop 1 on the ballot in California. That is a great wickedness. It is a demonic bill. Also, we see the transitioning of these children through the use of drugs and radical surgery, which is irreversible. Little kids, like these preschoolers, being taught that, that, that men can have babies. And, and you, you know, you're, you're really a, a boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa. And, and doing these, these drugs, these, these puberty blockers and transitioning them to transition them from one sex to another. You know, it's what it's saying is that, you know what? God made a mistake in making the male or female. That God made a mistake. God's word is to cry out against these, these wrongs, these sins. God's God's words to cry out is the clear and strong suggestion in those words that the character of God cannot tolerate such wickedness. And again, God says we are to hate what, what he hates and we're to love what he loves. How can we love the things that he hates? How can we hate the things that he loves? In closing, the Bible tells us that God is holy holy, holy. And because he's holy, this makes him super sensitive to sin. Because the more holy the character, the more sensitive to sin. If we can tolerate evil, we're only confessing to a lack of holiness. Naturally, that is the natural man perverted in his mind and in his heart, they will argue that tolerating sin is just being kind and loving. As the governor, Gavin Newsom, perverted scripture for abortion, saying, love your neighbor as yourself in supporting Prop 1. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. What about that child that's destined for abortion? Where's the love for that child? Prop 1, legalizing unrestricted late-term abortions, even on the day of birth. 
when the mother and the baby are totally healthy. Some will say, hey, it's being open-minded. Yeah, so open-minded, their brains have fallen out. What, so- what society used to condemn is today nothing more than a leg- it's a legitimate variation in lifestyle. It's an alternate lifestyle. We're progressing. We're evolving. We're moving ahead. All of this nonsensical talk to justify the toleration of evil only shows how a lack of holiness perverts love and it messes up the mind. It's what Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 1, verses 25 through 26, when he said, Men exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Jonah couldn't have, couldn't have had any greater support for his cry against his duty than God's holiness. 1 Peter 1.16, Peter said, be ho- God said, be holy, for I am holy. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, it's amazing how much we can glean from just two verses of your word, God. Which shows us we could never, in a lifetime, even all of eternity... Come to the full knowledge of your word, God. For your wisdom is infinite, God. And Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, help us to cry out, to take a stand, God, against the great wickedness that's all around us today, God. Lord, we pray that you would give people discernment, God, Give them eyes to see where this world is headed, God. Lord, your word says that the God of this world has blinded the people. The God of this world being being Satan, the devil. Calling evil good and good evil. Father, wake us up. Wake up the church. Wake up the Christian God. Help us to see, Father, how we can cry out in any means possible, whether it's voting, witnessing God, whatever it might be, Lord. We know that, that, Lord, that our salvation and our life isn't about a particular party. But, Lord, we do have a responsibility to, to choose and pick the people who lead based on how they see things, God, through godly eyes. To pick men and women, God, who who stick close to biblical principles, God. Help us, Lord. Because you're the only one who can. So, Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.